Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, it's a glorious thing to seek your face. Jesus said to know you is the essence of eternal life. And Father, we want to know the eternal life in the fullest possible way. And so now we seek your face. We seek your face in your word. And we ask that your word might be like a mirror And it might reflect your goodness and your grace and your truth and your wisdom to us today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we started a short little series. It's hard to even call it a series, isn't it, compared to what we're used to. It's only five weeks long. That's kind of like an extended introduction. A short little series of messages began last week. It's going to conclude on Easter Sunday. It's only five weeks long. It'll conclude on Resurrection Day itself. And I'm calling it simply Emmaus Message. Emmaus Message. And through these next couple of weeks, I want us to imagine what those two disciples that we're going to read about in a moment, who were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus on that first Easter afternoon, a seven-mile journey, I want us to imagine what they heard when Jesus himself spoke to them and taught them from the Word of God. I want to imagine that we're actually listening in on that seven-mile message. Now, it's in Luke chapter 24 where we find this account. If you have your Bibles with you, just open that to Luke chapter 24. The stage is set, and this gospel provides the motivation for these messages. So let me just read what we did last week, what we read last week by way of intro, and then we're going to add a couple of verses to it this week. So here we go. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. Luke says, now that same day, that's that first resurrection day, the day the tomb was empty. Now that same day, two of them, of Jesus' followers, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So they knew who he was. They should have recognized him, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, without them knowing who he was, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked them, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now that's all we read last week. This morning I would add these two verses, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That was pretty much of a rebuke. If Jesus ever came up to you and said, how foolish you are, would you say, well, thank you for that. So here they are. They're a little bit annoyed that he interrupted their conversation. They're a little bit annoyed that he's completely in the dark about what's been happening. That's front page news everywhere. And on top of it, he rebukes them. He says, they're foolish. How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have written. It's like, you don't really believe the word of God, do you? You might have read it, but you're really slow picking up on it. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. A rebuke. And then he follows that rebuke with what I'd call a thought-provoking question. He says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? It's almost like, how could you miss this? Isn't it obvious? They had never thought about that, that this had to happen to Jesus. Now, after asking that question, Jesus immediately followed that question with the walk through the scripture that we started last week that we begin to imagine last Sunday, his his teachings of them. Here's how Luke introduced it. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, we read it last week, it's our series key scripture, and beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote them. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so that's right where we started last week. That's where Jesus started this seven-mile message. He kept talking until they were home and ready for supper. Today we're going to hear just a bit more. And let me tell you, when he finished all that we're going to cover here in the next, uh, well, three weeks after today, when he finished those two disciples who first heard this Emmaus message, they were transformed by it. They said to one another, it's recorded in Luke chapter 24, verse 32. They said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now that, of course, is the reaction that the Spirit of God would desire to stir in our hearts as we sort of play catch-up after all these years. So what have we heard so far? Last week we heard, as it were, Jesus explained to those two disciples that Jesus Christ, the one they identified as Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they were not recognizing he was, he explained to them that Jesus Christ 
is the devil destroyer that God had promised. And to explain that to them, Jesus had to take them all the way back to the third chapter of the first book of Moses, Genesis, where God the Creator announced, following Adam and Eve's great disobedience, their fall into sin, God announced that one day, one day a descendant of Eve would crush Satan's head. That was the phrase God used. One of your offspring, he said to Eve, will crush his head. That is, put him out of commission for good. Now, it's a promise that is yet to be entirely fulfilled. Though, as we heard said last week, with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and the sending now of his Holy Spirit to indwell his own, we said last week that Satan's kingdom has been powerfully shaken. Amen? And Satan's doom is sure. Now today I'd have us resume our eavesdropping on this heart-stirring message that Jesus gave that Easter afternoon. So let's pick it up right where we paused it at the end of last Sunday's service. And you hear, you ask the Holy Spirit to let you hear Jesus' own voice as as those disciples heard him right there with them. As we begin, Jesus is still speaking, though he's still not recognized by those who are listening to him. Hear him say, I trust that you have followed the thought from Genesis right through the scriptures, even through some scriptures that haven't been written yet, regarding the incredible fulfillment of that ancient promise that this Jesus of Nazareth really is. He is indeed the devil destroyer that God promised would come. But let me tell you, he's much more. He's so much more. We've not even begun to exhaust the scriptures that speak of him. And now, my friends, I don't want you to wait another minute to respond to the obvious distress that you have felt over the horror of Jesus' death by crucifixion. There is without a doubt no more agonizing death than that. And there is surely nothing more brutal than the scourging that preceded it. However, no one who knows the scripture should be surprised by it. Neither surprised by the necessity of it, nor by the ugliness of it. Sin is indeed ugly in the eyes of a holy God. Sin inevitably leads to death. Remember? Remember God told Adam and Eve that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was absolutely forbidden. He told them that violating that single prohibition would bring death. As we've previously reminded ourselves... Due to Satan's deception, they violated that prohibition. They fell into sin, and sin indeed brought death. However, God in his mercy did not strike them dead immediately. He allowed them many more years of physical life, though their perfect, pure spiritual life was taken from them 
immediately. What they lost immediately was their perfect innocence and the privilege of life in the garden, though they were allowed to live on physically and experience a much lesser life in a now fallen world. And the reason? The reason the Creator could grant them a continuation of their physical life was because something else, picturing someone else who would one day come, was taken as a substitute for them. God, God the Creator, took two of the incredible creatures that He had created, two pure and perfect, living, breathing demonstrations of His wisdom and provision, two living, breathing, glorious beings that God Him, that Adam Himself had thoughtfully and lovingly named. God the Creator took them and sacrificed them in Adam and Eve's place. He took their lives. He shed their blood. He made clothing from their bodies to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, and he allowed Adam and Eve's physical life to continue. They were but the first of many innocent lives that God has allowed to be sacrificed over the centuries since to pay for the sins of the guilty. It was an ugly moment, a moment that caused all the heavenly hosts to gasp. The Creator, because of His great love for mankind, took the lives of other living beings that he also loved. He had placed the breath of life in them, and then Adam and Eve's sin required that life of them. God was not the only one whose heart was filled with sorrow that day. Imagine the sorrow, even the horror that filled Adam and Eve's hearts that day as they realized far too late the enormity of what they had done. Oh, the promise that the deceiver who had led them into sin would one day be destroyed was given, but that promise did not bring back breath to those incredible creatures whose lives had been taken. God in the garden that day demonstrated the truth that would be written down long years later by the great prophet and deliverer Moses himself. Leviticus 17.11, it says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. And so, there in the garden, the horrible pattern of innocent life being taken to atone for man's sin was established. Surely, surely you remember how the godly man Job would offer sacrifices on behalf of his sons and daughters just in case they had sinned in some moment of celebration and abandonment. In that case, Innocent lives were taken as a mere precaution, 
What horribleness dealing with man's sin brought into the world. God formally instituted these types of sacrifices when the nation was born in its days, in the days of its exodus from Egypt. As the final plague upon the people of Egypt, God himself passed through the land of Egypt and struck down the firstborn of every household, both man and beast. But the Israelites, the Israelites, the Hebrews, had been instructed to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their home. And when the Lord saw the blood of the substitute, the sacrifice, he passed over. He passed over their, their home. And no death came to its members, man or beast. And as you know, to this day we Jews celebrate the Passover with a sacrifice and a feast that reminds us that while we were still in bondage, God delivered us from death by the sacrifice of a substitute. Never could we Jews ever forget that sin brings death. That all of us live under the sentence of death for our sins, but that our merciful Heavenly Father has over and over again allowed innocent ones to take our place. And the hearts of all sensitive souls cry out, will it never end? Will this killing never cease? Will the lives of the innocent never stop being taken to atone for the sins of the guilty? People of faith, people who obediently bring their sacrifices year after year have always had those questions on their hearts. Parents. Parents have struggled to comfort the children who have seen their fathers, have seen their fathers take away the little lambs that they have themselves helped raise. Take them to the priest to be sacrificed for the sins of the family. In the hearts of many, if not all, there stirs a desire, a hope, a prayer that someday God will put an end to all of this that somewhere, sometime, somehow, there would be some sacrifice that would be pure enough and significant enough that it could serve for all men of all time. A sacrifice that would be so perfect, so perfect and pure that its blood would be sufficient to atone for all sin. What a glorious moment. What a marvelous provision that would be. And as you no doubt know, there have been hints given of such a once-for-all sacrifice at, at various points along the way. One such hint came during the 40 years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, and there came that time when poisonous serpents were, were sent among them by God in judgment for their disobedience. And Moses raised up a bronze serpent on a pole, and all who had been bitten when they looked upon it were delivered from death. 
It was a single solution that applied to many. You might remember that Jesus once said, speaking of himself, John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That, my friends, that, my friends, is what happened just three days ago when Jesus of Nazareth was lifted up on Calvary's cross. It was ugly, but it was also absolutely necessary. Jesus was and is God's final sacrifice for sin. His sacrifice is the one toward which all the others have pointed. The prophet Isaiah wrote so insightfully of one. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, he said, On whom, speaking of one to come, of whom the Lord will lay the iniquities of us all. Of this same one, Isaiah would say, verse 7, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And in verse 3, he had said, He was despised and rejected of men. Yet, verse 10, Isaiah writes, it was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Oh, my friends, this one that Isaiah foresaw was in fact Jesus of Nazareth the one that you have followed and believed in and and now doubted. Did not Jesus himself on more than one occasion apply those scriptural prophecies to himself? Did he not say on one occasion, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on another occasion, did he not directly say that that he must, Matthew 16, 21, he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day rise again? Wasn't that the day Peter was caught doing Satan's dirty work as he rebuked Jesus for saying such a thing? Indeed it was. And on this final trip to Jerusalem, did Jesus not say even more specifically, Matthew 20, 18, and 19, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And have not the words of John the Baptist hung in the air through it all? Did not John set the stage for it all when he simply declared on the day that Jesus first came to him, John 1.29, he said, Behold, behold, it's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. 
How could anyone miss everything that Hebrew history and the prophet Isaiah and even Jesus himself has shown us and told us and what John announced to us at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? What happened to Jesus on Calvary was all in keeping with the long-awaited remedy that God would provide for man's sin. Jesus came as God's final sacrifice the sacrifice of his own son, a sacrifice made with great sorrow, but also with great purpose. Perhaps you men were actually there at Calvary. Perhaps you saw it all unfold, just as it had been prophesied. You saw the abuse he took, the mocking he endured. You saw the crown of thorns that was so disrespectfully placed on his head, the rough hands that beat him and drove those nails through him. No innocent lamb was ever treated so badly. But he, but he, the lamb of God, accepted it and has triumphed over it. The price has been paid. Atonement has been made. The ugliness of sin has been overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So do not hang your heads. Do not hang your heads. Do not despair or doubt. For the long-awaited provision of God for the sins of men has come. Do not miss it. It has happened. Right here in your midst. Rejoice and be glad. Our God has provided for man's need. Open your eyes and see who this Jesus of Nazareth truly is and what our God has done through him. He is God's long-awaited, most perfect sin offering. Prepare to meet him, for he has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen and amen. Indeed, let me say now as Pastor Mark, as I step back from the sideline, back from this portion of the scriptural walk we've taken, do not miss this. Do not fail to grasp how essential the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary was. Do not fail to understand how it was the fulfillment of a great comprehensive plan of our magnificent, merciful, and yet brilliantly tactical Abba Father. Do not fail to take to heart today's closing exhortation, and here it is. Never allow yourself to think of Jesus Christ as any kind of victim. Oh, you'll hear people say, oh, what a shame, what a shame. Couldn't have there been another way. That was cruel, that was nasty, that was horrible. It just troubles me when I think about the Lord Jesus going through that, what was done to him. Oh, never allow yourself to think of Jesus Christ as any kind of victim. He was a committed and a courageous volunteer. He came in keeping with the Father's will. He came to be the Father's final sacrifice. He came as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He came not only to demonstrate the ugliness of sin, 
but to display the beauty of salvation. Entrust yourself to him completely. Now consider our final thought of the morning just says this. Jesus Christ's death on Calvary is God's once for all solution for sin and for the guilt and condemnation it brings. Jesus is the sin offering God has provided. So do you? Do you see the necessity of it? Do you see the beauty brought by it? God has made possible forgiveness of our sins and escape from the judgment that we deserve. Do you believe it? Have you received it? Do those around you know that you have? We're planning, as I said a while ago, we're planning for a baptism following Easter Sunday. Baptism is a time to publicly identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the one that God has sent to save us from our sins. I invite, I encourage, I could almost say as your pastor, I demand. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and have not been baptized biblically by immersion, symbolizing the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your own death and burial to sin, and your old life and a resurrection to the brand new life that's been given to you by the Spirit of God. If you've not done that, you're like a Christian hobbling along on wood leg. You've made a profession of faith, but you've not yet demonstrated to the world that you've done so. Baptism is a powerful, powerful symbol and reality. It says, I'm his. I want you to know I'm his. I want you to see what he, by his spirit, has done for me. For all the rest of your life, you can say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I have been baptized in his name as a sign of it and a testimony of it, and I want everybody to know that's who I am and what I've done and where I am. If you can't say that's true of you, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior but never been baptized, and, and I don't mean that did somebody lovingly sprinkle you when you were too old to know your own name, too young to know you. Some of us are too old to know our own names too. It's never too late. <laughs> oh, I tell you, right over there is where we baptize people and allow them to have this marvelous opportunity to publicly say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I identify with him. If we had a pond in our backyard, we could do it there. And then even our neighbors across the wall would know something's going on of a spiritual nature that we know nothing about. And we might get to tell the world. But let's start it here. And if you're going to be baptized, you bring everybody you know to that service. You say, there's something I want to show you, something I want to tell you, something I want to demonstrate to you that is incredibly important to me. And I want you to come. Will you?
Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh, to have an offering for sin. How glorious is that? Because all of us know what it's like to have a condemnation for sin. All of us know what it's like to, to sin though we don't want to. And sometimes to sin because we want to. And to have that hanging over our head. And to know deep down in our heart that there's coming a day. There's coming a day when we will pay the price for our sin. When standing before a holy, righteous God, we acknowledge we can't lie about it any longer, fool ourselves any longer. We acknowledge we are unholy creatures in the presence of a holy God. And there's nothing at that point we can do about it except bow our head and receive his judgment. Oh, Father, we're not at that moment yet. We're at the moment where we're living and breathing and standing here and hearing and receiving truth from God. Father, if there's anybody in this room who still feels content to stand with their sins on their own back and dare to say, I'll take my chances when I get there. Oh, Father, clear that up. May no one go home today who still has sin on their shoulders, on their back, and the condemnation of it, and not be absolutely distressed by it. And Father, if there is such a distress in this room this morning, would you let the good news that we've shared, that Jesus Christ, the innocent one, took their place, the guilty one, and if they will yield themselves to him as their Savior and Lord, you, Father, will forgive them of their sins. You will accept this substitution. And you will welcome such a one into your family. And you will grant such a one your own powerful Holy Spirit who will help them grow in grace and goodness until someday they might stand in your presence and rather be condemned. Stand in your presence and be commended. Well done, good and faithful servant, you say. So Father, this is our prayer. And this is our thanksgiving for Jesus Christ, the offering that you have given for us. I believe in him. I receive him. I live by him. We all in this room hopefully say the same. And may that testimony impact our world and shake the kingdom of Satan itself. For we ask this in his name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.